You ever feel lost, uninspired, alone, or defeated? Well, I'm inviting you to some fellow dreamers for some insight. I believe dreams matter, and you have one, or two, or ten, I don't know. To tackle challenges with love instead of fear is the first step. So let's experience this together as we dive into the stills of life. Are you ready? Go with the flow. David Lunar, how are you, sir? Doing good. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming. I can't believe this is your first podcast. I know. It's a virgin podcast for me, so I'm excited. Sweet. Now, tell me, I mean, I've been reading about you as much as I could, and I even tried to look for video interviews of you. Strangely, only Melrose Place keeps popping up in the YouTube results. Just kind of strange. For my sister. Your sister? My sister's an actress who is on Melrose Place, so you keep playing the other lunar. No kidding. Yeah. Well, they got to fix that search. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, I know you went to USC. Yep. Well, born in New York. Family moved out here when I was young, so as close to being a Cali boy as can be, but proud to not be a native in some ways. Um, Went to, as far as college, if you want to jump to college, I went to Brown University on the East Coast and then did graduate school here at USC. And then uh, somehow through all of that, I found my way into the entertainment industry. Did you know that early on that you wanted to go into entertainment? I had absolutely no idea. But in hindsight, I think, you know, the best advice I was ever given was follow your passion. Find Uh something you really like. And when you look back, the one thing I always loved was television. Um, But I didn't know what jobs there were in TV. So my sister followed the route of being in front of the camera and being an actress. I definitely didn't want to be a producer. I wasn't a writer. And sort of by hook and by crook, I found my way into the entertainment business in a part of the business that I love, which is the brand building and marketing and sales support. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't an easy journey or a logical journey, but in hindsight, I think it makes perfect sense. Interesting. I'm always interested why uh, certain men and women go in that direction instead of like the creative side. I think it's where your, your skill set is, where your passions are. Like, you know, my sister and I always laugh because she's an actress. She loves to be somebody else. She loves to be in front of the camera. But if you ask her to stand up and give just a speech as herself, she gets stage fright. I'm the exact opposite. I would never want to pretend to be somebody else, but put me in a room of 3,000 people and let me give a speech on my industry or something I'm working on or a project or something I'm passionate about, and I'm completely energized. So I think you sort of have to find what you like and what elements you like. And if you look at my my career journey, I just sort of follow things that inspired me. Yeah. Uh, and it makes perfect sense, you know, as a marketer laying it out. But it was never a path to an end. It was sort of a, a just a path to passions. Wow. So when after USC, you was that like a big stamp? Like this is where I'm going to go in so this direction? I think you know when I went to USC, which was an incredible program. Um, they had an amazing opportunity to sort of create your own disciplines within the master's program. And Mm -hmm. we had a couple people that were really passionate about entertainment. And so we got to sort of put together a secondary program where we had a chance to go to studios. I know we, at the time, sat with the head of Universal Theatrical Marketing and sort of learned about what that business was about. We went and sat with the head of Sony Marketing when they were launching the original DVD and the concept of packaging up entertainment for home usage. It was a radical change to have these sort of DVD packages. Um, So this whole entertainment concept was fascinating. And then in my second year, we had a speaker come from Mattel, and they talked about the whole concept of marketing being at the center of the toy industry, Mattel being both marketing and brand-driven. They talked about the power of the brands they worked on, and something sparked me. I'm like, number one, I had no idea you could make a living out of 
working at a toy company. And secondarily, this concept of brand and global brand building and entertainment franchises was super interesting. And I became obsessed and I pretty much stalked them until I got an internship between my first and second year and then fell in love with the toy industry. And I spent 12 years in the toy industry working on brand building and entertainment franchises. Um, And that was where I really learned about the tangential roles around entertainment versus being a producer. So when I was at Mattel, I worked on entertainment franchises at the time, all the Nickelodeon brands. They were a fledgling network trying to figure out who they are. Now they're a staple entertainment you know, brand juggernaut. But to watch them build their IP, build their global statement, understand who they are was incredible. And then I sort of moved through a number of toy companies, um, a division of Hasbro called Spectrastar. And at the time, we did all their kites and flying toys, and we had 90% of the mass market. So any entertainment company that wanted to do something that was flying-related came to us. So we worked with everyone, Disney, Marvel, Hasbro, um, you know, every single entertainment, Legendary. And it was this incredible WWE to learn who was doing it right, who was doing it wrong, how you translated IP into the consumer household. I just sort of fell in love with it. And then last I ended up at a company called Applause and we did major brands like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Pokemon. And um, so it was 12 years of working on brands, understanding brands, you know, seeing how they translated, working on partnerships and seeing how they translated to sales. And that was like the first stepping stone to ending up in, you know, where I am now. So you would say Mattel is like a nice boot camp as far as like, immersing yourself in that world i think the toy industry in general is because Uh it's sort of this hybrid of entertainment um mark consumer facing marketing and then the the rigors of retail which ultimately is kind of the part of the tv business that i'm in it's this how do you translate entertainment brands or find those that resonate with consumers how do you market them to make sure you find an audience and then how do you distribute them globally so they're very equitable um, the difference is with the toy business, it was all about borrowed, for the most part, it's borrowed IP. You would license in brands to have temporary equity. The big wins for the toy companies when they owned IP, like Mattel owned Barbie, or you know, Bratz was a major IP, or Hasbro had Monopoly. So the concept of renting IP was always an interesting step, and I wanted to move up the ladder and find somewhere where we were creating IP, and you had an ownership component, and that's kind of what the studios are doing. I didn't know that about toys. For sure, most Buying most rights just most for... toy companies it's called licensing and my initial career was all in licensing. So from the toy industry I went to licensing, my foray into the first entertainment companies I went to Fremantle Media to run their consumer products and licensing group. Okay. And the concept is you have IP and there are partners out there that want to license it and pay you for the right to use that IP to move a product. And most products on shelf are somebody paying for the right to use your IP to differentiate itself from the market. Again, very similar to the TV business, but that's sort of how I got started in it. And then the, the business grew, which is really, you know, I owe a lot to the, my Fremantle chapter. Now you were at Fremantle for over 10 years, right? Yes. And you were running that show. Well, it was interesting. It sort of built on itself organically. And in hindsight, when I, when I left, I was the president of brand partnerships and franchise management. But I went there to start one specific business, which was their consumer products and licensing business. They had this incredible deep library of IP, particularly game shows. Okay. Um, they had dozens of the top 50 game shows of all time and Price is Right and Family Feud. Uh, password, etc. So we sort of started this amazing licensing program, 
American Idol was in its first season. Uh, we had some other franchises coming down the pipeline. So you sort of started with consumer products. As consumer products grew into gaming became a huge thing and that sort of overlap with digital. So I took over gaming and then from gaming it really over uh, over indexed with what was happening in interactive and social. So then I sort of took over their interactive and social business. Then in order to drive sponsorship you needed these interactive and social components. So then I ended up taking over the sponsorship business and then from there we were looking at other brand extensions and so ended up taking over live events and then we didn't really have a, a marketing and PR group and those sort of folded under me as well so it went from one business to at the end after 12 years was running every business that wasn't tv production so Mm -hmm. that's the part of the business i love is you're sitting right next to the production team which is amazing and they're creating all that ip and then we're looking to monetize it extend it um, highlight it uh, any way possible now were you trying to sell the when you were at Fremantle? were you selling the rights to these shows like globally as well we were. I mean, Fremantle at the time was the largest independent production company in the world. Their global distribution infrastructure is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, production entities around the globe and a centralized um, sales group and marketing group based out of London. And then we had regional hubs that would support that. So we all contributed to the the, the nature of trying to sell shows and then packaging them up. Um, but I sort of sat at the end really in the U.S. business versus a global role. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to leave and go to Lionsgate at the time is I wanted to have this global seat and I want to get out of sort of selling the licensing piece and really focus on the product, which was mm-hmm. a, a big step for me. Now, with these American shows, especially you mentioned game shows, mm-hmm. um, other countries may not have any interest or, know even, or even know what's going on. So the challenge is like, how do you how do you sell those kinds of shows to them? Yeah, it's I mean, it's tricky. You can sell shows two different ways, right? We talk okay. about in our industry, you either talk about tape sales or you talk about format sales, uh, and it's two different ways to sell a show. And I, I like using the example of an American Idol. Everybody knows what it was. Yeah. It was a massive success here. You could take the actual show we watched here, American Idol, and then take those that show as it is and sell it around the world. So it would be in thousands of territories around the world. It's called tape sales. Do you want to buy the show as is and put it on your air? There's also format, which is the idea of how the show works is really compelling. And wouldn't you like to make a local version of the show? So American Idol was also sold in 30 plus territories around the world as UK Idol. Idol. 100%. And America's Got Talent at Fremantle, what they were very good at was creating global formats. So America's Got Talent uh, at least was and possibly still is the largest format in the world. It was produced in over 50 territories around the world as individual standalone shows. And you can see how that amplifies the business, which is you now have 50 countries making tape that can be sold. So you still sell America's Got Talent around the world, but now you have 50 other versions being produced, sort of exponentially becomes a larger machine. So there's two ways to sell it, and we look at both ways of doing that. Which way is more profitable? You know, it depends on the show. It depends on every show as its own financial beast. Right. Um, I think if you can create a format, as I said, everything just multiplies very quickly. Uh-huh. So formats at scale are always sort of the holy grail. But then again, there are just certain shows that travel incredibly well. You know, we right now at MG have an amazing show called Vikings. It works on a global basis. It resonates around the world. In many territories, it, it, it outrates uh, Game of Thrones just a show that travel there are tons of shows that do really well in the u.s but they're very u.s centric and they don't work in other territories so um 
again, you're right. It depends on the content. It depends on the storylines. It depends on a lot of different things and whether they were travel or not. Do you always try to sell both methods for, per show? You don't always retain the rights for both. Mm-hmm. Not all make sense to be formats. Some do, some don't. You know, unscripted tends to be an easier format because it's sort of, you know, insert celebrity or cast here. Yeah. Um, scripted formats are much more difficult. Probably the most famous one I can think of was, was The Office. So it was a yeah. UK show. Yeah. And they basically brought it here as a US format, recast it, used the first couple strips from the U- scripts from the UK, and then went off a whole other direction. That's a r- kind of a rarity. But when it works, it works really big. Are you part of the negotiation as far as like uh, which which sides of the show get ownership and which percentage gets what and all that stuff? You know, it's interesting. Every company's done it differently. I think you know they want to take input from every division um, because it's important as to who's sitting with what rights, where the assets are going to travel. Um, whether it's important to retain certain rights. Mm-hmm. When I was at Fremantle, it was critical because we controlled all ancillary parts. So we sort of said, yes, there's a high value to this. We should fight for these. Or there's a low value to this. It's easy to give them up. Since I don't run those ancillary businesses now, and it's really about sort of marketing and less involved in the actual sale mm-hmm. of the content, um, where we get really involved is all of the materials that support that show mm-hmm. and then how we can onboard and repurpose them for partners around the world. Gosh, so all over the world, you're pitching these shows, you're trying to sell it by uh, tape or format. Correct. And then I imagine you have to do your own research of like, this country's culture, what are they into? What genres do they love? What makes them laugh? Yeah, you're 100% right. The nice thing is we have a global infrastructure of salespeople who are experts in their territories. And so it's always fascinating to me to try and get into their head. And if we're doing our job well, what we do is we take a show the same show and we repackage our sales materials to service a specific client. Gotcha. So again, it may just be certain beats are more important to them. It may be certain things are taboo and you kind of want to stay away from it. Um, but it's fascinating when I see a show here, I'm like, this is a massive hit. It's going to be great around the world. And you sit with territory heads and they're like, it'll never work here because, you know, one of my favorite examples was, and again, I'm only six months at MGM, so most of my examples might be from Lionsgate, but we had, a, we had a tremendous show called Nashville, okay. which was on ABC, Golden Globe nominated, um, did incredibly well, critics loved it. You know, I was a huge fan. Part of the reason I went to Lionsgate, I was a fan and I wanted to work on it. And so when we went to the salespeople, we're like, here's some tremendous materials that sell this. They're like, we have no chance. Country music doesn't travel around the world. Exactly. In in that phase, I'd be like, how are we going to reach out? So that's the great question. That becomes sort of the, the, the marketer's challenge. And in that case, although country music is not a driver, what does sell around the world is the telenovela concept. Big give us big drama, uh, oh, lots of sexy situations, you know, sure. dreams translate. So what you do is you can't use the ABC trailers because it's all about country music stars in a country music city making country music. But what you can cut it is beautiful people sleeping with each other, causing drama, trying to fulfill their dreams in a city that everybody knows. So if you move the city to the backdrop and you move the characters and storylines to the foreground, it resonates. And all of a sudden it has a more, you can get more trial. When you get trial, people like it and then it tends to succeed. But that's sort of, you have to know that going in and how can you reposition something if necessary. 
I think the second part of it is you have to get sophisticated in the type of content you're making. And I think you had asked about the finances. And there are some shows that we know will work here and you simply just don't want international rights. They're not going to translate. And there's others where we'll pay a deficit. So literally lose money on producing a show in the U.S. The network will pay a certain part. The production says we'll cover X amount per episode. So literally you're paying to produce something, but we'll take the international rights because we know this will travel. And then in selling it in you know 2,200 territories around the world, you make that back and you have a long tail value of something to sell. So oh every God. deal is pieced together based on what you feel the inherent current or long tail value is. <laughs> My head's exploding. Yeah. It's like sophisticated gambling. It's, I mean, it gets far more complicated. I've seen like the, you know, when we talk about TV marketing, it doesn't just mean TV IP. So our domestic team, We'll sell lots of films to TV. When I say TV marketing, we work on anything that ends up on television. So we have a deep, deep at MGM, deep um, film library. So mm. if we're selling all of the Bond titles to a television, we then work on it. It's then TV marketing because it's being marketing at TV. So that's sort of how this works. Um, and again, that's just ways to create added value, to carve things up, to put things in your library. Wow. So are you? Uh, so there's a slew of uh, Bond films on streaming on Netflix right now, and I noticed that there's there's thumbnails that are changing every so often. Um, now your team is involved. Let's talk about key art. Yep. And the uh, critical importance of all that stuff. And so take us through like let's say one show or one film that turns into like a TV uh, series or you're licensing that. Um, how does it, how does it go with your team? You know, I wish there was one easy roadmap. And the yeah. interesting thing about being an independent TV production company is that we produce shows for, I'll say everyone. Like currently we have 52 shows in production <laughs> easily on dozens and dozens of network. And you and watch them all? I do watch them all. I watch early cuts of everything. So oh I spend a lot of time watching TV. But the, the, the big thing is that they all approach it differently and our relationship with all the networks are different. So there are some where it is a true partnership where we approach things together, we strategize together, we even augment some of their marketing materials depending on what their infrastructure is. And then there are partners that are like, we've just paid you a lot of money for the show. We're going to create some good materials. We'll make sure there's nothing offensive. Please keep an arm's length. So fortunately, there's a balance like that because you can't possibly manage 54 shows simultaneously. No. Um, but my analogy has always been our job is to be an active parent more than anything else. So I always say if you have a kid and you're dropping them off at a preschool and you drop off your one child and there's two children there and four teachers, you probably feel pretty good. Your kids are in good hand. They're going to take good care of that. There are networks that feel like that. We're working on Fargo now, season four with FX. They are amazing marketers. They understand the franchise. They have three seasons of doing an incredible job. It's very easy to sit back and watch them take care of our baby yeah. and and think about how this will reflect on a global basis. Tremendous. We're still involved, but they certainly are driving the ship. You know, then you can take your kid to a preschool, you drop them off and there's a hundred screaming children and one, you know, empath less than empathetic teacher in the corner. And you're like, I better be an involved parent. My kid's getting no education. And there mm -hmm. are networks like that. And, you know, as great as Netflix is, and they do some of the best marketing, they also drop a ton of shows. Yeah. And there you sort of know where you sit. And there are shows where it's just, hey, we're going into the algorithm and that's it. And if you want to do more, you have to sort of lean on it or do something outside of their ecosystem. So 
it every show we sort of depend how much love are we getting where do we fit into their their process how are we a part of their portfolio how important is this to us on a global basis is this a first season show or a 10th season show so we sort of sort of gauge all of that on the front end fascinating yeah and i think it's interesting that you brought up key art because you know that's the way we think is let's and as do the producers show me the big poster and show me the outdoor as as digit as digitally forward this ages um, people still love a good outdoor billboard and they still think about their key art and it's sort of i think the main reason is it travels with the show forever we always associate the key art or the poster um but there are so many other layers to marketing that will get you involved. It's you know all those trailers that you see and those mm-hmm. promos and those mm-hmm. social elements um, and the cross promotions and the on air. So it's kind of everything is additive and it depends who your audience is and how you want to go after them and and what the timing is. Yeah. So I I don't know if uh, I told you, but I'm trying to be a still photographer. And it's uh, it's kind of a funny job because uh, I mean I shot for a lot of like young filmmakers for free, just to just mm-hmm. to shoot you know, but uh, it's it's personally challenging to get it as a paid job because they either don't really value the importance of like high res still photos and BTS and all that stuff, because I guess they could just get their friend to shoot, but I always ask like well very gently. Like, how else are you going to sell your film? Hmm. I mean, it, it goes into everything, just like you said. Posters, thumbnails, billboards, first look, um, all that stuff. Yeah, it's different. I mean, it's different between film and television. Like, I think for film, it's critical to publicity because you have to have those first look images. You have to have that behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. That's going to augment all the slick marketing that the you know the studios are doing. For television, again, when you think long tail and episodic, you have to have assets that support every episode. So unit photography for us is absolutely critical. And in general, if a network's not going to do it because there's always there are there are cost parameters, we will make sure that we're getting unit photography because you sort of have to service a client because you now have all of their online guides. You have releases that are going on. People want to dive deeper into their favorite episodes. You have to have the materials to support it. There's multiple ways to enjoy a show, right? You either lean back and that's fine. You sit on your couch and you lean back and you enjoy it. And then there are plenty of people that lean forward, which is this feels familiar to me and I want to know more and they will go deeper and deeper into the content. And I think Mm -hmm. it's that imagery and information that drives it. Yeah. I I noticed about 20 years ago, television has been like booming with like great stories and a lot of movie stars are crossing over into television more than ever, mm-hmm. which is which is great for your jobs. Um, and movies are kind of getting a little bit more PG, PG-13, very, you know, explosive, lots of CG. So how do you feel the future might be with television versus film? It's interesting. I think the lines are getting more and more blurred. I mean, if you just think recently with The Irishman and Netflix, you know, collapsing the windows and doing something both in theater and almost simultaneously doing something on screen. It's certainly a film. It's nominated for Best Picture. Um, but half of the people, if not more, watched it on TV. Yeah. Um, you look at what, you know, how Reese Witherspoon's really embraced the TV space between Big Little Lies um, and then also now doing The Morning Show. Yeah. Um, there's success. Great. I think what's changed, if anything else, is the ability for television to tell the stories that used to only be able to be on film. 
So with these premium cable channels and these SVOD channels, number one, there's no sort of regulation on what they can do or show. And you're not also, in many cases, subject to the commercial breaks, which can ruin storytelling. Yeah. Um, and I think what they've finally embraced is there is a prestige to it. And what you used to try and tell in two and a half or three hours, you can now tell over 20 hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, 40 hours. It becomes this amazing way to do something. So the stigma has been gone. I don't think there's any negative to it. I just think you're getting better talent coming to you know, a, 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 an interesting distribution method. It's not going to undermine film and film's not going to undermine television. And, you know, everyone talked about the death of television, um, but there's more scripted series this year than there's ever been. There'll be over 500 scripted series. Please. Yeah. Uh, you talked about commercial breaks, which is uh, a very, very big necessity for television shows and networks. But as audiences... I don't think anybody really enjoys those breaks. So how, uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know, how, how do these shows earn money with ads and stuff? Yeah, so the, it's, the networks own the media time. So their mm -hmm. investment in buying content and producing content from us like independent producers is all recouped through their ad sales. So they, it's obviously a necessary evil. They need to sell it. And as you said, people are time shifting content more and more, which ultimately devalues these spots. So they have to find other ways, which is how do you become a sponsor? How do you do in-show integrations? How do you create secondary content? How do you become part of the online dialogue? So it's critical to networks, which are nervous, which is why you can see they're all shifting into other models. It's why NBC announced Peacock, which will be a hybrid SVOD and AVOD. They're still going to lean into their ads, advertising funded video on demand. Yeah. But you can also subscribe and they'll get that fixed income and you can get rid of commercials. It's kind of following that the Hulu model of when it first launched, you just watched ads and you were so happy that stuff was up there and then you could pay a couple dollars more and there were no ads. Yeah. But they're getting the money either way. So um, it's a challenging space for advertisers because they need to find the eyeballs. Uh, it's a critical space for the networks because that's how they make their money. Yeah. Um, it's not an issue for the independent producer because that's not where we, we don't rev share on advertising. Our success is if our content drives enough viewers, which generates enough value on their advertising to renew the series. So we want viewers and we want advertisers to be happy because then we'll get renewals on our shows. Sweet. Now, I, I always think like, okay, if we do a subscription service, uh, the benefits is like nobody really gets ad breaks. Um, but so let's say Netflix, for example, or this is probably a stupid question. Are they really funding these shows all based on subscription membership? Exactly right. So their model's completely different, right? No other cash flow into the budgets? It's just subscription. It's just subscription. Wow. But look at the sheer volume of subscribers they have around the globe, all paying a monthly fee to use the service. It's also the reason that they're upside down and why they spend a lot more than they make because that's sort of their model. So financially, people are questioning the model, but anything that acquires this many users as quickly uh, the financial institutions are very high on, but at some point it needs to be profitable, which it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing at taking over the world and changing all of our models, but they've yet figured out a way to actually be profitable. They make a ton of money, but they spend all of it on content and infrastructure. Oh my gosh. So, so that goes the same with like HBO, 
uh, all these like cable shows that you're paying monthly. That's all. Yeah. They use so HBO is a bit different because they were always a premium channel that was part of uh, you know carrier network. So you could mm-hmm. get HBO as an add-on to your Directv. Yeah. So they're participating in those add-on fees. And then they went around the cable things. You can get HBO Go direct, which puts money directly in their pocket. Now yeah. they've sort of merged into HBO Max, which will be purely directly to the consumer. So everybody's trying to figure out how do you get more shares of the revenue? How do you get the direct relationship with the consumer? Um, sort of how do you move up the food chain? And that sort of led to this whole concept of what is now the SVOD wars, streaming video on demand wars. I mean, we'll have five major players pretty instantly. Um, you know, content, uh, the best phrase I heard is content's being weaponized. They're paying tons of money for content because people go to the platforms to watch a show. That's still what drives you there. So you've got to have the best content, which is great for production companies like MGM. Um, And, you know, and then people are going the other way, which is, you know, Peacock is going to do advertising funded and say, people don't have to pay. You can have ours for free, like a Pluto TV or a Tubi TV. So everyone's trying to figure out their place in this crazy new market. Oh my gosh. I'm, I don't know if I should be excited or nervous in the next 10 years. What's going to happen? I think as a as a consumer, as a TV watcher, it should be nothing but excited. I mean, yeah. all that's changing is there's more content <laughs> directed at you, delivered to you in more ways. So you can have it how you want it, when you want it, where you want it. So for a user, it's great. Being in the business, it's far scarier because the rules are changing all the time. The rights yeah. are changing all the time. And, you know, Netflix broke the model. So there are some amazing things about Netflix because you can now go to Netflix and your show can go around the world day and date simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're working on a brand new show with them, which is a spinoff of the Vikings called uh, Valhalla. Um, and what this, the producers are really excited is when it goes live, you know, in a couple of years, the whole world will see it the same day. Nobody yeah. can do that but Netflix. The negative side is they bought it out. It's their, It's basically their show until it's not their show anymore. So where it used to be, you would get paid by a network to produce a show and you'd make some money and then you'd go and sell it thousands of times over and then when it went out of run you'd sell it a thousand times over again it's one sale with netflix is there a difference like when you're marketing shows for cable network streaming or is it all relatively the same the the principles are exactly the same right Mm -hmm. it's you need to you need to get viewers interested in your content you need to stand out from the clutter you need to drive people to tune in so all those things are the same who your audience is, how you find them, what materials will resonate with them. That's where the the art part comes into the science. The biggest difference uh, is sometimes budgets. Cable tends, in general, have less budgets than networks, which may have less budgets than some of the SVODs, the way they're spending money. But I think the biggest difference is networks treat TV like a film. They want to let you know it's coming. They want to tease it. They want to let you know it's getting closer. They want to prepare you. They want mm-hmm. to get it on your radar. And then once it launches, then they sort of trickle out their marketing because it either worked with you or it didn't. The SVODs like Netflix are the exact opposite. They're relatively quiet pre-launch because their whole mantra is, we only want to advertise, watch now. So there'll be a little bit of awareness, but once they launch, they actually, it's the exact reverse. They ramp it up and everything is, watch this show right now, tune in right now. So that's a big difference. And we've had to educate our production teams of, you won't get a three-month campaign. You'll get a three-day campaign, but it'll be very effective. Jeez. 
Now, do you also have influence over the creative production? Like, let's say there's a conflict of interest of an actor because he won't sell as much over here, or we can get this distributor because we can get more ad money if we cast it this way and take the story in this direction, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you've had the big debate. That's really a sort of a sales and production debate. So you're either looking at art for art's sake, which is we're going to make the show that we believe to be best. And then there are the fiscal considerations, which is sales is like if you cast this lead or this name or this ethnicity, Mm. we have a better chance of selling this globally. So that's the balance. And we certainly have those conversations regularly. And, you know, I think each side wins their fair share. But if the mandate is, you know, we're going to put up a few million dollars per episode to produce the show, knowing that we have to sell it in territories around the world, sales is going to get a pretty good say at the table, which is this is only going to work for me if. So you have to sort of have that balance with not giving up your creative integrity. When everything works where you get that magic of development building the show that they want and producing the show they want and sales ending with a product that travels around the globe. I mean, that's just sort of the holy grail and that's what we're all sort of looking for. How do you guys uh, study the algorithm of all this? You know, it's interesting. Algorithm is the phrase of the TV industry right now because everything's supposed to be an algorithm. Yeah. On the production side, for television, it's not really a thing. So on the on the network side, like Netflix is very aware about what they need to do and who they need to appeal to. And unlike ratings, they're like, we believe this content, this producer, this talent is going to bring in an audience we don't have. And it's all about subscribers or they're going to keep an audience that we think is going to leave. So their algorithms are, are, are driving everything. It's what content, what contents, uh, you know, resonating uh, where are there gaps in our market? How do we extend user experiences? And so that's a big part of how they commission content. Um, so that plays a big part because they'll come to us and say, we need something that has global appeal, that's a period piece, you know, that's going to appeal to women 35 to 45, and then we'll develop for it. So that's sort of spoon feeding us results of an algorithm. And the networks were the same thing, which is this is either resonating or not resonating, or these are these storylines. Um, our approach is slightly different. Ours is understanding what the markets need and then trying to produce the content to fill those market needs as mm. broadly as possible. And audiences are becoming more niche. And so MGM's pivoting to make sure that we have the ability to be flexible in the types of content we produce. So okay. we'll be producing high-end scripted that's easy to sell and may and, and, and probably translates. And then we might do regional, you know, less cost because it'll work in Europe be a great product for Europe, but maybe not in the U.S. And then unscripted, you know, you may produce here or produce somewhere else. So I think you sort of have to spread the wealth and place different bets. And we'll be ramping up production, but targeting different territories. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How many people are in your team every day like this? So we were a (laughs) a very small team doing very big things. I mean, I was just today, we were, you know, working on some planning with the sales team. You're talking about, you know, 40 global salespeople. That are all working oh on their God. territory, you know, and our team is a dozen and we're a centralized marketing team. So, you know, we're doing everything from supporting our scripted and unscripted teams on their pitch materials to help mm-hmm. them sell to networks, which is great. We're leaning into, you know, our 54 plus productions to work on those marketing materials. We're onboarding all of those marketing materials and prepping them for global distribution so that they're 
generic. Um, we're then making all the sales materials for all of our movies and TV shows for our sales teams to sell around the world. And then anything they sell anywhere around the world, we're then servicing those network partners and working on their marketing campaigns and giving them all their materials. So it's really the full gamut of the TV life cycle, life cycle which is why I love it so much. Jeez, still, what a grind. It's, it doesn't feel like a grind if you're doing what you love. Every, yeah. every day is a new day. Yeah. Every day is exciting. And I always say, you know, look, we, my passion is traveling around the world. And you go to some of these countries and you're like, wow. You know, oh, you, you do? You okay. walk all day to get water, you know, when we were in Africa. Or, no. you know, people don't have flushing toilets or hot water. We were just in Bhutan over the holidays. And you come and you're like, all right, I have to make four trailers today, which is hard work. But I'm making four trailers for incredible content and incredible companies. So, if you have perspective, it doesn't feel like a grind. And my only complaints about this job have ever been, sometimes there's too much of a good thing because there's only so many hours in a day. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you getting sleep? I'm pretty good at trying to keep balance. Uh, my wife is mad at me because I'm a great sleeper. I say I'm going to sleep and in the second breath I'm out. So I don't have any problems sleeping. So, That's awesome. you know, you have to have some balance. I'm just an early riser. We get up at like 4.30 to do the Whoa. gym. Have we, a little balance. together? Personal. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yep. She's in the same same space I am. She actually is in uh, worldwide TV marketing for DreamWorks Animation. So oh. very very similar lives. Okay. Wow. What a, what a talking to a power couple here. <laughs> Let's talk about your time at Lionsgate. Uh, we, we know some mm -hmm. mutual people, sort of. You more than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just want to like mention Michael Fisk because he's like the nicest, uh, super gregarious person. Uh, insightful professional i've met well thanks yeah. to michael i'm here he's definitely the one that introduced us and i've now on my second chapter with michael so we got a chance to work together at lionsgate and now work together at mgm so uh yeah he, it's very lucky when you find nice people like that and get a chance to work with them yeah and uh let's uh, let's touch upon your time at lionsgate because you were there for a while like yeah. four or five years ish yeah it was an incredible chapter i think i've, I've always been you know lucky i guess but sort of when luck and preparedness meet like i sort of feel like i've always been at the epicenter of what's happening in television mm. and I'll, I'll get to lionsgate but when i was at fremantle we got a chance to work on american auto which became the biggest entertainment show in the world and we were getting 35 million live viewers per episode it was the heyday of unscripted you then worked on america's got talent which became the biggest global format in the world uh, American Idol actually became the largest interactive event in the world, and I have four Guinness Book of World Record plaques on my wall. Um, it's just amazing. And, and that show resurrected, right? It's back. It's on uh, yeah. ABC, uh, which is amazing. And it's then rare. it's very, very rare to come oh. back. So, um, and then I got a chance to go to Lionsgate, and at the time I got to work on the final season of Mad Men, which some consider the greatest scripted TV show of all time. Got to work on Orange is a New Black, also I think going to go down as one of the most innovative and groundbreaking series and one of Netflix's first series. I think it was their second major scripted series. Mm -hmm. um, and really got to work on this whole global landscape and you know get rid of these ancillary businesses and just work on global marketing. It was an incredible place to cut my teeth. Um, it's a really entrepreneurial, nimble company, um, lean. I mean, they they will they are self-professed as scrappy, and it's a great place to learn because you just get a chance to do everything. And when I went there, there was you know three people trying to run global marketing, so we got a chance to sort of build an infrastructure 
Um, I love being centralized because we work with every division of the company, whether it's theatrical or corporate or TV production or sales, um, PR. So it was an amazing chapter, and that's how I met Michael. He was my contact to sort of help provide the information for the films that we were selling around the world. Wow. And uh, you you mentioned you were were personally hired by uh, Lionsgate television chairman Kevin Beggs. Yep, he, I actually ended up with three bosses, which was an interesting chapter. So three, three. So I reported. Scary. Yeah, it's it doesn't make it easy. I'm very happy to have one boss right now, but I was lucky. I had three incredible people I worked for. So I had Kevin Beggs, who was the chairman of television, obviously yeah. very uh, instrumental in in the hire, and then Sandra Stern, who was the president of television, um, okay. and then also Jim Packer, who was the president of global distribution. So I had oh. I had three masters to somehow try and serve. I said it was like being a child of divorced parents. You know, they all loved you, but they didn't always get along. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't know. I don't, I don't want to know. <laughs> and then you moved on to MGM uh, pretty recently. I did. It's um, very interesting. I'd given Lionsgate a five-year plan of how I would build up the infrastructure, sort of set up some processes, get them caught up to the modern age. We did it in just over four, which was amazing. Um, and then there was an opportunity to go to MGM and do the exact same thing. They are in major growth mode. They needed to create the infrastructure to support the next chapter. And it kind of feels a little bit like uh, Groundhog Day, uh, but it's you know a fascinating time. And again, you hit things just at, right at the sweet spot where you know they have Handmaid's Tale season four in production, incredible series. Mm-hmm. They have Vikings in its final season with Valhalla as a follow-up series coming. They also have the Testament, which is a follow-up to Handmaid's Tale coming. Fargo, oh. se- yeah, Fargo season four, um, which is in- you know incredibly uh, critically acclaimed, and I think the first two seasons won like you know shows of the shows of the year. So, and then at the same time, you have this massive unscripted infrastructure. You know, they have the legacy titles from Mark Burnett and The Voice and Survivor and Shark Tank. And then they're just making a slew of other new content, um, whether it's, you know, Vanderpump Rules or or the Housewives of Beverly Hills or just a million. I mean, they have the live PD. So the sheer volume of content's exciting. And then the film franchises are off and running. You have something like Bonds. You know, I can't wait. It's going to be the 25th film for Bond. It's going to be incredible. We have Respect coming, which if you haven't seen the trailer, is unbelievable with Jennifer Hudson uh, playing Aretha Franklin. It's amazing. Oh, when is that? Uh, It's later this year. Oh, for the Oscar season? One can only hope. Possibly. You never know. Cool. Well, Aretha Franklin personally hand-chose Jennifer Hudson, so it's quite a good stamp of approval. So this will be different from Cats. It will be hopefully very, very different from Cats. (laughs) Oh, gosh. She's not going to wear dots on set yeah. or anything. Oh, so Lionsgate must be mad at you for leaving. Oh, geez. Yeah. No, it's, you know, I always say this industry is just the same people uh, at different companies. You know, we just yeah, got back yeah. from Nappy. You just walk around and see all the same faces. And the first question is, where are you now? That's so funny you say that because Chris Rock made a joke about that. He said, uh, uh, if you want to get in this business, be a gentleman because you're going to have meetings with the same people your whole life. I'll go farther say be nice to everybody because you will walk into a room at some point and one of your assistants will be either your boss or someone that's buying shows from you. Oh, hell no. A hundred percent. That's how this works. All right, fine. I'll try to be humble. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, gosh. Is there any complaints about your job? Uh, I said, I mean, honestly, I'm not kidding. I think there's a lot of sometimes it's just too much of a good thing because we're a centralized group. I always say we try and be the house of yes. 
Um, and most people make very reasonable requests of us, but when you're servicing a thousand people yeah. and everybody makes one request, that's a thousand requests. So sometimes trying to manage that is tough and trying to do it the right way. Um, so there's just phases when it feels somewhat unmanageable. I just, we just went through a chapter I would say was probably one of the hardest I've ever dealt with, which is we had four major trade shows over the course of six weeks. So you had Nappy, which is probably the biggest domestic and Latin American TV sales show in January. And literally the next week you had Real Screen, which is probably the biggest unscripted sales show of the year that we had to prepare for. We then roll right into our London screenings, which are happening in just a few weeks. And then there's EFM, which is a giant film sale show for us. And we support all of the materials, all of the pitch materials, all of the in-room materials, all of the screening materials. So that's, there's a couple late nights in there and there's a little bit of stress and there tends to be some frayed edges. But when things get crazy, you just sort of sit back and go, nobody's dying. You know, this isn't life or death. We're talking about making beautiful pieces of artwork to sell content that are going to make people happy. So it doesn't make you less tired, but none of it's bad. And I feel super lucky every day on what I'm working on and the awesome. quality of the product. Do you Are you very involved ahead of time where you will read like pilot scripts and make your notes of like this could work this is not good probably one of my favorite parts of the job is that we sit literally at the at the front of the table and you know today's request was there's a new high profile show they want to pitch and can we cut you know a trailer for them or can we work on some mood boards for them to take that out to the network so that's as early as we'll sit hmm. when we've commissioned a show we will read all of the scripts but more from understanding what are the positionings? What are the stories? How is this going to market? How are we going to help guide our network partners? So we watch every cut. We're very much sitting in the passenger seat with our production entity. They have We have to be two sides of the same coin because there's production and marketing. And my first speech when I started, I walk around to everyone, I was like, we have to be part of your family or it doesn't work. So that part's fantastic. And then we also need to know everything because we are the voice that then translates it to the sales teams around the the globe they're not sitting in the production meetings and so then we become a major asset for them saying here are the storylines here's here's what the vision was of the creator here's how the storylines will go here's how the marketing vision is here's what the tone is and we can sort of help them position it in selling so love that gosh i can't believe you're reading all this and watching all this i don't know yeah again yeah, you're right you don't there's not enough time there's not enough time but i'm being asked to watch television and television's my passion and right. i always talk about marketing when people come in to apply for me and they say they want to be in entertainment marketing my first question always is are you film or tv and so they're like both yeah very few people are actually both hmm. some are i found a couple but most usually either have a passion for film Mm -hmm. and or a passion for TV and so I found those that say it's both and they come in they're really film lovers they they want to move on to film it's a different process it's a different beast it's a different mm -hmm. pattern so I can know. honestly say I'm both there you go yeah I mean a lot of my favorite shows are feel like films and a lot of my favorite films are just emotional and you know scarring I'm gonna I'm gonna believe you because you have both TV and film posters on your wall right here so yeah. I know you're not lying to me yeah one of them I loved. Uh, <laughs> what's the biggest misconception about like marketing TV shows? I, I, I really love that question. And I think when people come into interview, I try and make sure that they don't have misconceptions. I think yeah. the biggest the biggest misconception about marketing in general is that it's one discipline. And people are like, I want to be in marketing. And I'm like, which part of marketing? And if they can't answer the oh. question, then you know they're not in the right place. Right. So 
if you're all about consumer-facing marketing, I want to cut ads, I want to work on key art, I want to be the the, the social voice to our consumers on our shows, okay. you don't want to work in a studio. You want to work in a network. That's what they do all day long, cranking through all these shows that they're programming constantly. Um, so there is that point of it. There's analytical marketing, which you talked about, running the algorithms, how we do positioning, what are the, the drivers, what are the you know the data points that will move this forward. That's not me, I don't wanna do that, but some people love it. Mm-hmm. You know, then there's sort of this, my job's primarily, or at least 80% B2B marketing. You know, I had a sales background, as we talked about, in licensing, so I love translating IP into the key beats that will help you sell a program. So we're, it's still marketing, it's all the B2B facing materials, it's how you're gonna position it, it's the aesthetics for building sell sheets and, and key art, and sometimes redoing the key art. But I'm, I like telling salespeople that have a creative avenue to them. But then I get that nice 20% of that big high-end on-set gallery shoot, working with a network, you know, mm. working on global marketing so campaigns. Fun. So it's, it's a good balance. But if you think you're coming to do one thing and you do another, then it's just not a fit. You ever get nervous if like some, sh- like let's say more than half your shows are just not, cutting it i mean i'd yeah. be panicking if i, I think you. every company has gone through that i think every company ebbs and flows and we all sort of watch each other at any given time uh-huh. a company has a massive hit or they have no shows you know every company i've been a part of has had the really robust years and the really lean years and you're always nervous about a show getting canceled or your reliance on any independent piece of IP. And so it's all about volume and scale and portfolio selling. And so when you have 50 shows on air, you feel a lot better than when if you have two. Uh, yeah. Um, but you're also nervous when you have shows that, you know, the longer a show runs, the better the financial model is. So you want to get shows that third and fourth season. And if those get canceled, it takes a bigger hit. But yeah, you're constantly having to develop and fill the pipeline. And everybody knows the phrase content is king. And mm-hmm. both for the network partners and for the production partners, you have to have that content that resonates. I, I'm in a difficult position every time uh, a great show overstays its run. And it goes dry. It mm-hmm. gets a little weird. I mean... I mean, I don't know if you're involved with Dexter back in then days, but uh, that's a good example of like, it's maybe three seasons too long. Yeah. And uh, Lost. And uh, I mean, look, we all talk about shows jumping the shark. Yeah. And I think there's always a couple reasons. One is late in season shows make a lot of money. So sometimes the network is like, we need to have more episodes because people are tuning in or the production companies are, this is making sense for us. And you can sort of see when people lose a creative vision or the story has been told. It's like athletes. Athletes rarely quit at the pinnacle part of their careers because they always feel there's something more left in the Mm -hmm. tank. It's kind of like that. And when you see someone go out on top in our industry, it's someone says, we're ending this because I believe the story that I needed to tell was told. And, you know, Breaking Bad really went out on a great note is sort of like, the story's done. Yeah, They've tried to revisit it. I'm not sure it really worked. But that's not the norm because this is, you know, it's the business of television. There's a business component yeah, to it. But I it's understand. but you have to appreciate it when shows don't do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm a, I like sitcoms. I love Modern Family. They're deep, this is their final season. I don't think it's lost a beat, which is pretty rare. And then there's others that just, like, completely lose their way. And it's hard to get, it's hard to get that back. Yeah, we don't have to name all of them. That's right. <laughs> there's a lot of them. Oh my gosh. 
when I talked to Michael Fisk, like before that, I always thought a film's budget included the marketing budget to sell that film. But it's a separate budget. Um, I'm sure, is it the same with TV? And like, where does that money come from? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a separate bucket. Okay. That's why the networks have marketing teams. Yeah. And the value of spending has to be offset against the ROI of the advertiser dollars. So what's the ROI? Uh, the uh, return on investment. Okay. So what you're sort of doing is you're paying an amount up front to drive viewers, and the amount of viewers what drives your value of your advertising. So you talk about that's the mechanics of doing this, and sometimes there's lost leaders, which is we're fine to overspend in the beginning if we believe it'll create a long tail value, or sometimes they don't want to spend at all, realizing any dollar we spend could potentially take away from the profit. So okay. again, it's art and science. Um, but as a production company on the TV side, it's not an issue we deal with other than the fact of, are we getting enough love from our network? So we're constantly leaning in saying more, 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 but we're spending somebody else's money. Right. So it's a very different relationship. But yeah, each network has shows and they allocate budgets to those shows. And you know, again, they base it on what they think the return will be for the value of the spend. So when you're going into a fourth year show like Fargo, which is really, you know, limited series because each show is a completely new cast, mm -hmm. but now it's a known entity. The first three did incredibly well. It's huge for the network. There's an expectation. They'll spend a ton of money because they know it's going to drive viewership. They know that there's a huge value to this. Everything else for new shows can be a gamble, but you can sort of tell when a network's spending against a show, you can just see the frequency at which they're doing and kind of tells you either their investment, their belief in it, or some other uh, financial component. So would it be super expensive for, let's say, Fargo, which is on FX, right? Yep. To buy ad break space on like, to show like the teasers on NBC or Fox or... Yeah, so or, uh, I think every, cable networks. every network has a toolkit of things they can use. And so what we'll talk about is they have owned and operated. So, you know, FX is now part of Disney. I don't know how they work. I don't have the secret sauce. Oh, yeah. um, but basically, you now have owned and operated. So they can theoretically get free placement across the FX network. Well, obviously on the FX, they can have free placement, but maybe across the larger Fox network or maybe even on the Disney network, which is sort of, they have all of these levers they can pull, which are owned and operated it's across their social or they're on air, or maybe they own billboards. They're kind of no cost or past cost solutions. And then there are hard dollars, which is we're gonna go spend against our social on Facebook, or we're gonna go try and buy ads. But in a competitive environment, some networks aren't allowed to buy on other networks. You know, right. ABC might say, thank you very much, FX, but we're not going to let you advertise your show on our network right. to get people to leave our network. So there is... Even if it's for an hour. They don't want, they don't want yeah. to do it. So I guess it that depends. won't change for a while. I know, but then again, you will see Netflix shows on primetime networks. So I will? They're 100%. You'll see ads. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So they think really about do it. They're a competitor. Money. Yeah. But it's Jeez. money. You know, and then it's, you know, we talk about, everyone's talking about Super Bowl. People are spending millions on a 30-second ad. 5.6? So is it really worth it or is it not worth it? Someone has to make decisions. I believe spending $5 million for 30 seconds is going to return some value that's justified. That better be 30 long seconds just to make it worth it. Yeah. 
or there's some driver, there's a bigger initiative, or it's a truly anticipated piece of content, or you're starting a story, or you're starting a dialogue. Like, there are a couple ads that will break out, and the the earned value, which is you paid five million dollars, but press or consumers will love it so much that they amplify it, and you get way more than five million dollars worth of value. There are ones where you just put it on, and people are like, okay, and you spend five million dollars for twenty seconds of my attention, which is not good. So for a minute, would it be double? Yeah, that's the way they charge, I believe so. Holy crap, 10, yeah. 11 million. Yeah, I don't know what the ads are going for, but yeah, it's a it's uh, a lot of spend. And I think, you know, you talk to marketers, they're like, how many people are actually watching? How much are you paying per eyeball? And it's a crazy, doesn't make any sense unless mm-hmm. there's a long tail value to it. Uh, this might be a horrible thing to say, but if there's a movie or show coming up that I know it's going to be good with some strong cast and story... I avoid all the teasers and stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. You don't want to have spoilers. You don't want to know much. But marketers don't care because you're already sold. Yeah. So you're not probably the audience. Like if you, Mm -hmm. if fanboys in particular, like with fanboy content, people know that they're in. So you certainly want to reach them early. You want them to be advocates and talk about it. But maybe you're not going to spend a lot of money to get people that are already audience. Yeah. So the art of marketing is who's tangential to those people who are the people that wouldn't naturally come but are are an organic audience to try and bring in so let's talk like the mandalorian right every star wars lover pretty much they announced the mandalorian i'm like i'm in you don't really have to advertise to me and then they sort of had this whole teaser and they had baby yoda and they're trying to advertise around baby yoda and appealed I, I to women yet. i'm only on episode four but you know that baby yoda yeah, showed up before yeah, then so i won't yeah. say anything but that has baby yoda has a much broader appeal yeah. so you can use him in ads to appeal to one gender you can use the mandalorian and fight scenes to um. pro- apply to someone else you can use the great talent they sort of brought in to appeal to a third audience so it's sort of like are people following talent let's create marketing for them are people following storylines let's create marketing to them are people following franchises let's create marketing that's, that's where the algorithm comes in that's like a, it's just segmented marketing it's if you're doing marketing right there's no longer create one trailer and then uh-huh. send it out to the world it's it's segmenting audiences and then giving them content that appeals specifically to that audience right because I tried to avoid No Time to Die trailer for the longest time until I went, I walked in late, I thought it was late, to Star Wars. And I caught the last half of the trailer. And I gotta admit, I was like, hot damn, this looks awesome. It's a great trailer. <laughs> I can't yeah. wait to see this damn movie. I mean, he pulls out the guns in his uh, Aston Martin. It's <laughs> amazing. And I was like, oh, this is his last film. I hope it's gonna be like better than Casino Royale and Skyfall put together. But I'm sure it will be, right? It's gonna be right? a, gonna be a great film. You saw it? I you have saw not. the dailies or anything? I have not. Okay. That's my, my side of the business. But uh Michael Fisk, if you're listening, I'm gonna avoid everything I can until opening weekend. <laughs> as long as you go is what he would say. Oh yeah, okay. dude. I, I love James Bond. I'm always fascinated by pilot season. Um I hear different stories all the time. Um, like some studios will pay for a pilot. And then use that to pitch it around, or a series will be given that whole like full season order, um, and then they're spending millions of dollars either way, which is insane because yeah. everybody wants it. So, what factors lead into one of those decisions? I think it depends on the value of your IP going in. So, 
you go, what we will do, the key to pitching a show is you want to find the right home. So sometimes you're very lucky and you're the, you know, the, the beautiful girl at the dance and everybody wants to dance with you. And sometimes you're just back against the wall and you, you can't get on the dance floor. So depending what the IP is, you sort of go around and pitch it in a perfect scenario. Um, a network will say, we love it. We're going straight to series. That's sort of not the norm because that's a massive financial commitment. You're going on the basis of usually a script and some talent associated with it. And so the concept of a pilot is, you know, show me, don't tell me. Mm-hmm. So the risk of spending a few million dollars to produce something and watch it and literally go, yes, this is the vision you sold me or this is the quality that I saw is far less of a risk than spending tens of millions of dollars to create a full series that doesn't live up to expectations. So networks usually want to dip their toes in. Production companies usually want the whole bag. And sometimes that's a deal point that will move us from one network to another. One will say, we'll go to series and one will say, we'll do a pilot. You know, and if it's the right network and it's a pilot, maybe you take a risk because you believe you have a longer play and a better audience. Or maybe you say we need the guarantee of a series because we know this will work and this partner is also a good fit. So it hits all the check marks, hits all the check marks. So you can do a 10 episode thing. So you just it's you know, you're constantly jockeying to figure out what the best deal is. But pilots are totally normal. It's a way to sort of, you know, test the goods and. You know, there's certainly you can build in penalties of if you don't pick it up, you pay us a certain amount of money. I don't like that word. Yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting thing. But if you believe in a piece of content and it's you produce what you believe both parties want to deliver, mm-hmm. then you know hopefully it gets picked up to series. But that's always where you hear a pilot did or did not get picked up. Oh, God, maybe they could just release it as like a one hour film or something. Yeah, I think everyone's trying to find different ways around it. Whether you can test IP on the internet, whether you sort of create some proven factors by bringing talent on you know mm-hmm. if there's a sort of a social footprint will that drive awareness known ip helps work so if you're doing a derivative from a film or you're translating something you're being a format then you have a little more leverage which is we're bringing an audience and if we're bringing an audience we want a series pickup not a pilot pickup but it just depends on how many suitors you have and what the offers are and where the right home is and you know Every studio is different. Do you want the short-term cash, cash up front for someone that might be a right, not the right home, or do you want to take the risk to be at the right place where you can have a long relationship that could drive a lot more money? It's a tough call, and those decisions are made every day. Oh, my gosh. Last question, I yes. promise. Where do you see this going in 10 years' time? So interesting. I think this whole industry has been asking that question for the last two decades <laughs> and pr- pretty much getting it wrong all the time. Um you know, I try and go to any industry talks I can to sort of get some insight into that because everybody has an opinion. I'm not sure anyone's right. And there's three things that resonated with me that are sort of, I think, big variables in trying to guess where things are going. One is everybody's been waiting for the SVOD wars yeah. um, and they're now fully here. I mean, you've got Netflix, obviously, the big incumbent, Disney Plus, doing an amazing job. You have um, Apple launched. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, Quibi coming in May, so. in April. You have HBO Max coming in May. And then you have Peacock coming in July. So the SVOD wars are here. And I think at some point, people can only take so many subscriptions. And I think it's going to sort of figure out 
do these start to get bundled together? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And then it's the beginning of the AVOD wars because only so many people can compete in the subscription model. So Peacock kind of hedge its bets. They're doing both advertising and subscription. Mm. Um, and then you have like these the Plutos and the Tubies competing in the advertising space. So the landscape will change, but all it means, as I said for you and me, is more content, more ways, better content. Um, and then I think the last phrase I had heard, which really resonated with me, is we've talked about the golden age of television and then sort of this platinum age of television, which is this 500-plus series. And someone I, I listened to had talked about this post-peak viewing age, which is basically there is so much content now and yeah. content specifically directed at you so that shows you would absolutely like to watch. And there's more than you can physically watch in any given day. So you have to start to make choices of I will give this up in order to watch this which makes marketing more critical. It makes you actually have to give up things in order to watch other things versus you sort yeah. of used to be able to gather it all and watch it all. That's what I'm afraid of. Just over time. So that's probably the hardest part is good shows won't be given enough time to succeed. Mm. Some players will certainly drop out. Um, you know, Things are going to be flipped more quickly. But on the flip side, there'll be a lot more shows, a lot more opportunities for good things to be made, better people moving to television. Um, I think it's going to be an amazing chapter. TV's not going anywhere. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. I hope I didn't uh, ask too many stupid questions. And uh, thanks, Michael Fisk, uh, for sending Mr. Lunar here to this podcast. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll meet again. One day I'll submit a photograph to you. That might be crucial key art. Absolutely. And I always remember this was my first podcast. All right. Cool. Thank you. You got it.